Uh, You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And as we uh, remember and celebrate that grace, I just pray that your uh, name would be glorified and your message would be heard. We thank you so much for Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. I was reading uh, about a guy uh, that had passed away and uh, specifically in his will, he left about $50,000 for a a very elaborate funeral that he wanted. And uh, the funeral happened and as the last kind of attenders left, uh, his widow, his wife was talking to her best friend and she said, man, I I really think he'd be pleased by what you did here. And she said, I I think you're right. And her friend just kind of leaned in and said, go ahead and tell me we're friends, how much did it really cost? And the widow kind of was taken aback from it. She said, well, 50000 And the friend said, no, I mean, it was very, very nice, but come on, you know, $50,000, that, that seems a little high. And the friend said, I kind of in general know what things should, should cost. And, you know, as I kind of added up the church and the priests and the food and drinks and all that stuff, you know, to, to me, you should have about $40,000 left over here. How much did it really cost? And she said, well, the memorial stone did cost about $42,500. And she's like, Memorial Stone costs $42,000. How big is this thing? And she said, well, seven and a half carats. Um, <laughs> and I, I, think that, I think that everybody kind of thinks about this from time to time, uh, thinks about kind of end of life and, and funeral. And our thoughts usually go a little bit deeper to what we want the service to look like, although that's, that's part of it. I, I think it goes to how do we want to be remembered? And all of us think about this from time to time, and it varies from person to person. I think some want to be remembered as a family person. I think some want to be remembered in their field of work as as particularly excellent. Uh, I think some want to be uh, remembered for the experiences that they provided for their family, vacations that they took and good times they had. I think some want to be remembered via their relationships. Um, and all of these things ring true to me. They probably do to you as well. I'm, I want to be remembered for all of those things as well. And I found um, a few years ago now when I was turning 40 years old, I found myself just thinking about this quite a bit for whatever reason. And I, I thought about all the things that I just mentioned. And I said, you know, as I'm turning 40... I want to add one thing to the list. And I I remember writing it down kind of in my journal. It said, I want to be remembered as a grace guy. A a guy that preached about grace, certainly, but a guy that lived it out and and showed it every single day to the people I'm in relationship with. And I've I've got a long way to go on on, on this issue, Um, but but this is really embedded uh, deep into my heart. When I saw Tim Keller uh, that we kind of based this series on, when I saw his list of, of tweets, I was like, oh man, This Sunday, I knew I was going to love to preach this to you uh, because this is so embedded into my heart, this idea of grace. Here's what Keller wrote. He said, Christianity offers a unique view of salvation. We are saved by sheer grace and Christ's work and not ours. We cannot contribute to salvation with moral effort, religious observance, prayers, transformed consciousness, etc., A finished salvation is received and not achieved. And even as I read those words, I think grace creates attention, um, even amongst Christians. I've said this to you on on several occasions. I think Christianity as kind of a religion is kind of afraid of grace. And what we're afraid of is that if we consistently show grace 
And if we constantly talk about grace, people are going to get the impression that they can live however they want to live. And so we're, we're fearful of, of grace. And one of the reasons is, is that we as, as Christianity, if I can talk for, for Christianity just for a moment, we have bought into a lie. And the lie that we have bought into is that it's our job to control people. And this is why we're so afraid of grace, because grace lets go of control a little bit. Uh, now listen, it is our job to teach. It is our job to point people to Jesus. Uh, it is our job to do a lot of things. But controlling people and their individual decisions is really not part of our repertoire. We're not very good at it. Our mission and purpose is to point people to Jesus, to preach grace, and to show grace. And when we buy into the lie that our mission is to control people, it just leads to anger and frustration and angst. And I think that's why a lot of times, we'll, we'll talk about this more a little bit later, sometimes when you see the angry response of Christianity, sometimes it's tied to this. It's like, oh, you're angry because you thought your job was to control them. You thought your job was to control this world. You thought your job was to control culture, and it's really not our job. Now, certainly, grace will cause us to say yes to some things, to be certain. Um, grace, hopefully, will cause us to say yes to Jesus and his salvation. That's what grace is all about. And so when you hear the good news of grace, hopefully you're overwhelmed by the kindness of Jesus. The scriptures will say it's his kindness that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that draws us in. It's his kindness that causes us to, to say yes to him. So when we hear about this forgiveness of sins that is available, this new life in this life and the next, when we hear the message of grace, hopefully we respond with a yes. It does cause us to say yes to some things. It causes us to say yes to that new life I mentioned. That grace is a transforming belief system. Right? Grace is never just internalized just for you. Grace changes the way you see everything and everyone. And many beliefs are transformative. So for instance, if you believe government is at its best when it's small, or if you believe government is at its best when it's huge, whatever you believe about, the, uh, about that belief system, whatever your belief is in that realm, it will impact almost every single news story that you consume, almost every single one. Grace is the same way. Grace when internalized, grace when received, grace when understood, changes the way you see every single relationship, Every single interaction, every single encounter, grace changes everything. It's transformative. So you and I will live completely different lives when we believe and internalize grace. So grace will cause us to say yes to joy, hope, and peace. Grace is one of the few things that, that actually leads us to joy, hope, and peace. So grace will cause us to say yes to those things. There are belief systems that you can believe in that will cause anger and bitterness, and bullying, and revenge, and control. There are belief systems that result in all of those things. Grace just isn't one of them. Grace causes us to arrive into a place of joy. Grace leads to joy. So the truth is, grace will cause us to say yes to many, many things. But you know what the scriptures also say? Grace will cause us to say no to some things. Uh, grace will cause us to understand no just as much as it causes us to understand yes. And so what I want to do is I want to show you some, show you some scriptures that talk about this and just explore this idea of, uh, uh, with you about what are the things that become no because we understand grace. 
Here's what uh, Titus 2 says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So grace, when properly understood, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Now, his argument here is twofold, all right? His argument is that, first of all, when you understand grace, you understand how you received grace. That grace happens from the cross of Christ. That he gave himself up. He went through immeasurable suffering. He gave his life so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could walk in new life. So imagine just for a minute that you found yourself in crippling gambling debt. To the point where like the casino or whatever was talking about, you know, sending Jimmy no thumbs to, to threaten your life sort of thing, right? You're, you're in bad, bad debt. Your brother cashes in his, retirement, his entire retirement savings to eliminate your debt, all right? So your brother's like, I was going to retire in five years. I'd rather have you alive. I'm cashing in the entirety of my retirement to pay off your debt. The right response to that grace would not be, hey, let's celebrate by going to the casino. <laughs> I'm feeling lucky, Bill, right? No, that's not the right response. The right response to that grace would not be racking up more gambling debt. This is the argument here. Your sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. The right response is not to run back to them. The right response is empowered by his grace to run as far from them as we can get. And so grace properly understood doesn't cause us to run to sin. That would be ridiculous, Paul says in another text. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? The, the Greek word kind of denotes, that's insane. No, we would never do that. Grace uh, causes us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to run away from sin. The second argument is the purifying argument. That Jesus, and you, we talk about this all the time, so I know you know this, that Jesus didn't just come to redeem us from our sins, he came to purify us from our sins. So this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. That when God was giving the law to the people of the Old Testament, one of the kind of things that he said about the law is that if you'll follow these laws, they will make you holy. They will make you different. They will make you set apart from all of the neighboring communities around you. That law would make, this law would make them different from their neighbors. And so the law caused them to say yes to some things, but the law caused them to say no to some things as well. And ultimately, what this difference caused for Israel was this different life that they were living caused them to be hated. By, by the neighboring communities because they were saying yes to some things, but more importantly, they were saying no, some, for, to, no to some things. And it's different for, for us because we're not just given the external law. We're given the internal law, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, but the goal is the same, that you and I, through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the law, that we would be different. We would be purified, that we would be holy as we say no to ungodliness. And grace is the thing that fuels this no, because we know that God loves us. 
And he sent his son for us. And he wants what is best for us. And so that understanding of his grace and his love causes us to say yes to holiness and no to ungodliness. Grace drives us toward holiness. Now this creates tension. It does. In your neighborhood. When you're around the people that you're around. The followers of Jesus that say no to ungodliness and say yes to holiness. It creates a tension with those that say yes to everything. Here's how Jesus said it one time. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Listen, folks, all right? As we say no to ungodliness, our saying no doesn't need to be angry. Why I never understand the angry Christian response. I understand kind of righteous indignation and righteous holiness. I, I get some of that, I guess. But why would our response be angry? It is being driven by God's grace. That this thing that you're engaged in culture, this thing that you're saying yes to, it is not God's best for you. It is not what God wants for you. It is not where true life is found. You need to say no to what you're saying yes to. There's no reason for it to be angry from us because it's driven by grace. But the response from this world, Jesus says, Jesus promised this, by the way, the response to the world, regardless of what our tone is, just by the fact that we're saying yes to holiness and no to ungodliness, the, the culture's response will be angry. And it creates a tension. As you say yes to some things and you say no to some things, you are going to receive ire from this culture. And here's the, here's the tension. It's human nature to want to be loved. And to want to be liked. This is why we so carefully manage the likes in our social media account. Sometimes our desire to be liked and our desire to be loved causes us to say yes to some things that we should be saying no to. We affirm some things as Christians that just should be a no. Be careful about that. Be very careful about that. As a follower of Jesus, all right, this is not like a happy-go-lucky message, but as a follower of Jesus, can I tell you something? In love, the world won't love you. They may love an individual decision that you make or an, an individual uh, affirmation that you make uh, that, that agrees with them. They may love you in a moment, but over time, what you say yes to and what you say no to will become offensive. It just will. Jesus promised that it, that it would. So be very careful about a need as a Christian to be liked and, and loved. In this world, you will be hated. Why? Because of what you say yes to and what you say no to. There are some things that are just to know, and when you say no, this world will not love you. The other reason for this is that you are not of this world. You belong. You don't belong to this world as a Christian. You belong to Christ. And so there can, you can affirm whatever you want to affirm, but there will come a point where your yes or your no becomes so offensive that this culture and this world will hate you. All right, let me show you another text uh, as we move on here. All right, here's what Paul says in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, 
But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the other thing grace does. Grace teaches us to receive a no from God. Now, let's be honest, right? Just truth on the table here. It is hard to be told no. My four-year-old daughter would affirm this greatly, right? <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. We, we were doing our, our staycation uh, putt-putting a couple weeks ago, and we were kind of in the sun all day, having fun with church family, all that. It, it was a really great time. And at the end of it, we were getting ready to go, and Lila said, could I have a hot dog for lunch? And Cheryl and I said, Yes, you can, but they don't have them here, and so we're going to need to stop somewhere on the way home, and we'll buy you a hot dog. She starts crying. Lila, why are you crying? I can never have a hot dog again! That's not at all what was said. Very dramatic. It wasn't even a real no, it was a yes that was a soon you can, but it was received to her as a no, and we don't like to be told no. I think it is especially to hard to receive a no from God. When you've prayed about something, and you've asked God for something, and it just seems like restoration's not coming, or healing isn't coming, or salvation isn't coming, and no one really knows for certain what Paul is talking about here. Something that, something that it may have been a physical issue. Uh, there's another passage of scripture where he talks about his eyesight going bad. So some people think it might have been tied to his eyesight. Um, some think it may, think, uh, people think that it may have been relational, which really cracks me up, right? Paul was in a conflict with someone and he said, this thorn in my flesh, I need to talk to you about it. I pleaded with God three times to rid me of right? It just cracks me up that that may have been a person he was referring to, right? Um, some think that it may have been tied to persecution in, the, in, in some way. No one knows for sure. But what we know is that Paul says, I pleaded with God. And so far, the answer has been no. See, sometimes God's grace looks like yes. And he brings about the miracle. He brings about the restoration. He does this amazing thing. And you all probably have some stories you could tell about a time where, God, where for God it was like a yes. And you're like, man, it was amazing. And you could tell a story right now. It's amazing to see. Sometimes God's grace, God's grace looks like a no. Sometimes, in and of itself, the no is the grace. When you think about the prayers that you had in your life, aren't you grateful for some times that God said no? Where it's like, man, I am so glad I didn't get that job. You hear about later what happened, you're like, oh, that was a grace that I didn't get that job. I'm so glad you ever had this time. I'm so glad I didn't marry that person. I thought, I pleaded with God. I'm so glad that relationship didn't work out. I'm so glad I didn't go down that path. The no was the grace. And, and you would look back on that now and you say, man, that no from God, that may have been one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me, him saying no, because you can see how the subsequent yeses led to something incredible. But that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying here that when God said no to him, it's never just a no with God. It's, the grace is not just the no. The grace is the no, but my power will be made perfect in your weakness. So God says the answer to that the answer to that request is no, but what's yes is my power. 
I will give you my power made perfect in your weakness, power to overcome, power to persevere, power to live the life he has called you to live. And this power that comes with the no is a form of his grace. So if you're ever like, man, where's God's grace for me? It seems like it's one no after another. It's just no, 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 no. And I pray and I pray and I pray and it's just no, 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 no. Here's what I would say to you. Look closer. Can you see that in the no, he has empowered you and equipped you and helped you through the no to live the life you were created to live? His power, sometimes the no is a grace. I think about if all my prayers had been answered yes, I shudder to think where I'd be. I prayed some really, I I don't think you can say this, but stupid prayers, right, when when I was younger, right? That's just the way I look look back on it. I was like, that was kind of not a smart thing to pray. And I'm glad God said no. Because where I am today is the result of his graceful yes and his graceful no. And that's a grace in and of itself. But either way, when it's a no, it accompanies his power. Next passage. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And here's verse 9. I love this. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit for those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is Hebrews 13. So grace teaches us to say no to strange teachings. The teaching that Paul is referring to here, or the writer of Hebrews, I I think it's Paul, but we don't know that for sure. But the writer here, the strange teaching he is referring to is this teaching that When you became a Christian as a Gentile, one of the teachings that that was out there was that you needed to conform to Jewish dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. So it's like, man, you didn't grow up in a Jewish house, you didn't grow up in the Jewish religion, and some uh, pastors and teachers and prophets were teaching that you need to conform to these dietary restrictions. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's strange. That's a strange teaching to put on people. And his argument, as you read the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is enough. His grace is enough. It's not Jesus plus diet. It's Jesus plus nothing. His grace is sufficient. His salvation is sufficient. His work on the cross is sufficient. So he said, man, you're hearing this. This is a strange, strange teaching that you now have to have Jesus plus a diet. I mean, a diet would probably do me good, but that's not what this sermon's about, right? That, he says it's strange to put that yoke onto people and to say, man, his grace all of a sudden is not sufficient. You need to follow these dietary restrictions as well. Now, here's what I would like to say to you. How many of you know that every culture has some strange teachings like this when, when it comes to what we teach people theologically. Can, to, can I tell you one of our culture's strange teachings? I could do this all day. This is just fun for me, but I'm going to give one. A strange teaching of our culture is that, like, God is obsessed with my happiness. That it's Jesus plus me being unconditionally forever happy. That, that it's like the thing that he wants the most. 
And what this does, what, that God is obsessed with my happiness, Jesus plus my happiness, is it causes us to say yes to some things when it comes to sexuality or leisure or relationships or marriage. And we could debate these things all day long. Our culture loves to debate these things. But what if just the original starting point premise wasn't true? What if the original premise that God is obsessed with my happiness, what if that is a modern-day version of this, that, well, that's strange, That's a strange teaching. Think about it from your family's perspective. You know what would make my kids happy? The same thing that would probably make your kids happy. What would make my uh, son and even daughter to a lesser extent, but both of them super happy, would be if I removed all limitations on screen time. Right? My kids think that we are the worst, right? Because we have these restrictions. What would make them super happy is if I left here and they said, you know what, convicted by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to remove all restrictions. Unlimited screen time every day. My kids, that would make them so happy. But then you know what I'd start to notice? I'd start to notice increases in hyperactivity, increases in migraine headaches in my son, I'd start to notice a core inability to concentrate. I'd start to notice anxiety and depression. And Cheryl and I would sit down and we're like, you know, I feel like this is kind of tied to what happened after church last Sunday. (laughs) Where I decided to leave here and say, you know what? Screen time palooza. Whatever you want, whenever you want, I just want you to be happy. You can have as much as you want. And, And we would identify that as the marker and we'd say, you know what? I think Sam and Lila are having too much screen time. We're going to have to pump the brakes a little bit. And there'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't care about me. You don't care about my happiness. And I'd say, you know what? There is more at stake here than your personal happiness. Your mental health. Your physical health. Your spiritual health. It matters to me. So no, I'm not, I guess, all consumed with your happiness. What if God's kind of like that? Not exactly like that because... He's not, all right? So um, what if he's not opposed to your happiness, but it's not the only thing or the top thing? What if developing in his children love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What if developing core character in his children is really towards the top of his list and our personal happiness is not the exact top of the list? What if developing these other things is really, really important to him? Isn't that a type of grace? You know, when you think about that list again, um, those things, if, if we're obsessed with personal happiness, we won't even allow God to do some of those things. You, you know how God develops patience in a person? He gives them children. <laughs> right? No, no. I, I, he, the way God develops patience in a person is he puts them in situations that try their patience so that they can learn and grow. And if you're obsessed with your own personal habit, you will not allow God to develop that trait in you. You know how God develops in you a sense of peace? Sometimes the way he does that is he brings you through like a war or a trial or a difficulty and teaches you what true and lasting peace looks like. Right? So sometimes our 
sense that God is obsessed with our happiness is actually at war with what God is actually trying to do. This is why the writer of Hebrews will say, man, do not be carried off by strange teachings. I thought about just doing a message just on this. The strange teachings of our culture. You notice what he says next? He said, don't be carried off by strange teachings. Notice what he says, allow your hearts to be strengthened by grace. Grace is the antidote here. See, a strange teaching is a teaching that moves us away from the core thing that Jesus is trying to do. Grace reminds us that God is at work in a variety of ways. He's at work to strengthen us and redeem us and make us new. So we want our hearts set on Jesus and the work that he is trying to do, the work that he wants to do. And we want to be very careful. It's so easy to do, to not be carried off by a strange teaching of the culture we live in, but to keep our eyes set on Jesus, who is at work every day. And sometimes what he wants to do is kind of the opposite of what culture wants to do. So don't be carried off by a strange teaching. Be strengthened by grace. Last one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of, the, uh, of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Grace teaches us to say no to work-based identity and salvation. Look at how we're described in this text. It's not super flattering, right? This is the position we're describing. He says, you were dead in your transgressions, dead in your sin. He's saying here that sin did two things. It kept us from having the relationship with God that we were created to have in this life and in the next. And it also kept us from living life that is found in him. And it contrasts the life of the ruler of the air with the life that the spirit offers and that God desires for us. And we don't like that the Bible says this, but the Bible says it nonetheless, that we are, because of that sin, we are deserving of God's wrath. We sometimes lose sight of this part of God's character that because he is holy, because he is righteous, because he is perfect, sin must be dealt with. It must be. It must be punished. It must be put to death. This is the very nature of God. And so what do you do with that truth? That I am a sinner and that God must deal with sin. Our culture deals with it in a couple ways. The first is we become desperate to make ourselves righteous. And if you don't believe me, just peruse social media. I think this is one of the chief kind of undercurrents of social media is that I am proving in a desperate fashion to prove I am righteous, to prove that I am good, to prove at a minimum I'm more righteous than you. Right? And so I'll post good things that I did. I'll post good thoughts that I have. I'll post the great deeds that I have done. And I am desperate to prove that I am righteous. It's one of our responses to this 
conundrum that we're in, that we are sinners and God must deal with sin. So he says one way we deal with it is that we are desperate to make ourselves righteous. The other thing we're desperate to do is to prove that God is just like me. Right? So we either lift ourselves up or we bring God down. We are desperate. While we are created in his image, what culture does is makes God in our image. And so all of a sudden, we do these mental gymnastics to prove that God is affirming of what I'm doing, that God is okay with what I'm doing, that God doesn't really care about my sin, and we bring God down to our level. The other thing that we do, the third thing that we, a lot of us do, is we just hide from God. Uh, we just don't want to deal with this conundrum at all, this position that, that we're in, and, and this has been happening from the beginning of time, that we just disappear from him. Stop attending church. This is some of your stories. Stop reading our Bible. Stop praying. We just hide from God. But I need you to know there's a fourth option. We don't have to lift ourselves up. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And trust me, we don't have to bring God down. And we should. There is a fourth option in this text. And it starts with my two favorite words in the Bible. But God. But God. That we are, sin we are sinners. And God must deal with our sin. But God who is rich in mercy. God who is graceful. But God who is kind. Sent his one and only son to pay for our sin, that we were dead in our transgressions, but God. We were dead in our sin, but God. We were dead in our life, but God. Because of Jesus, through his grace and mercy, we were made alive in Christ Jesus. So I don't have to lift me up. I don't have to drag him down. I don't have to run and hide. Because of grace, I can run to God, and he allows me to run to him. I can worship and pray and seek and be in the relationship with him that we were created to have. You know what the fourth option is? Right? Option number one is bring myself up. Option number two is bring God down. Option number three is hide. You know what the fourth option is? Grace. That I understand and I internalize and I believe God's grace, that my sins are forgiven, that he has made me alive in Christ Jesus, that I don't have to run and hide, I don't have to lift myself up, I don't have to bring him down, I can just be in a relationship with him and live the life I was created to live. And that's good news. And it's grace. It is by grace through faith we have been saved, not by anything we have done. What would we have to boast about? That's what the, right, that's what the person seeking to elevate themselves does. They boast, they brag, they lift themselves up. We're not boasters because we are saved by grace. We recognize our sin, we recognize our holiness, and we recognize that in the middle is a blood-stained cross that rescues us from death. It is by his grace we have been saved. So we own our sin. We give it to Jesus. We worship him. We don't hide from him. We recognize his holiness and his perfection. And we are empowered by his Holy Spirit to not just be forgiven of our sin, but to overcome it. And that is great news. It is grace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. And as we get ready to receive communion, I just want to pray for us right now that we would bask in your grace for a few minutes this morning. And that it would cause us to say no to the strange teachings of our culture. 
It would cause us to say no to ungodliness and to say yes to holiness. It would cause us to receive a no from you, understanding that many times the no is the grace, but in other times your no is partnered with your power, that you're working a plan that we can't see. And most of all, I want to pray that grace would cause us to say no to work identity. That we would not lift ourselves up because we are sinners. We would not bring you down because you are holy and righteous and we want to revere you and respect you. We would not run and hide from you. But we would love this fourth option called grace. That our sins are forgiven by a holy and righteous God. And so we understand as forgiven children, we can run to you. We can love you. We can worship you. May it be true of our church. May it be true of every individual listening. That we would just bask in your grace. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together. And like I said, it's just an opportunity to bask, to remember, to celebrate. They're going to pass out the trays, and you can kind of, you'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has the bread representing Jesus' body, the other has the cup representing his blood. This great grace moment in the scriptures. I just want us to hold on to those cups and just revel in his grace for a few minutes, be changed by it, and then I'll come back up and we'll receive uh, communion as a church family. His body given for you, his blood poured out. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Let's stand and sing one last song. God bless you guys.